1 Corinthians 6. The title of the message you'll see is Be What You Are. If you would like an outline for this morning's message, Caleb is going to be in the back and he's going to have a few of those outlines with him. Um, Please raise your hand and he'll be sure to get you one for both this morning and this evening's uh, service. Title of the message, Be What You Are. When I was in college, uh, one of the interesting things about a college environment is you have a lot of guest speakers that come through. And when, whenever we had a guest speaker come through and he said certain words, these words would kind of make me cringe a little bit. He would say the words, this crowd has great potential. This crowd has great potential. Now, potential is a good thing. The idea of potential is that you have abilities, you have opportunities, there are things that are set before you, and if all of those things come to pass, then good things will happen. But the more I live, and the more I minister, and the more I serve, I I realize that potential really doesn't mean a whole lot. Potential is just what could be. But if... What could be, I mean, there's a lot of things that could be, right? (laughs) And not a lot of those things come to pass. And so potential doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot in the grand scheme of things as much as actually things bearing fruit, coming to fruition. And this morning, the title of the sermon is Be What You Are. I look across the room and I could say this way, there's a lot of potential in this room. We're a small group. But a group of 30 born-again believers has a, has a great deal of potential. You think about the 12 apostles who, as is mentioned in Acts, turned the world upside down for Christ. And while we could have looked at those 12 and said there's a great deal of potential, what really mattered is what God did through them. And so I'm going to encourage you this morning to be what you are. When you accepted Christ as your personal Savior and you were born again, you became a ball of potential. But God doesn't want you to remain potential. He wants you to be usable and used by Him. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let's read this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. We're only looking at three verses this morning. And then we'll talk a little bit about the context as we get into the message. Scriptures tell us this in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. It's been two weeks since we've been in 1 Corinthians, so let's remember a little bit of the context. Our context begins all the way back in chapter 5. I guess technically we can always say our context begins all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1. But... Back in chapter 5 is really where the snowball got rolling that Paul is working with right now. There was a fornicator in the church in chapter 5. Paul tells the church that this ought not be so and that he needs to be removed from the fellowship. We talked about separation, the necessity of separation. 
but we also talked about the limits of separation as we got near the end of chapter 5 that we are to separate ourselves from unbelievers who are walking or from believers who are walking unseemly but not from unbelievers for if we were to separate ourselves from unbelievers who are steeped in sin we would have to separate ourselves from the world we'd have to come out of the world because every unbeliever is steeped in sin they are by definition steeped in sin because they have no means by which to have victory over the sin in their lives because they don't have the Holy Spirit's empowerment, because they aren't a new creature, because they aren't born again. In chapter 6, Paul transitioned into this warning about not going to law before brethren. And when we preached that message, it was a two-part message two weeks ago, when we preached that message, we, we noticed three points. First, that we are positionally capable to judge between believers. That by virtue of our salvation, we are seen as positionally more capable than unbelievers to judge the matters at hand, be them carnal or spiritual. The second point that we made, and this was the first point in the evening message, was that we have a testimony to uphold. And when we as believers go before unbelievers and bicker and argue and, and bring those things before unbelievers, we are not reflecting well the testimony of the church of God. And then finally, Paul said... And this is our immediate context in verse 5 through 7, excuse me, verse uh, 5 through 8 of chapter 6. He says that brothers going to law before brother, before unbelievers, but why not rather just take the wrong? Why not rather just suffer ourselves to be defrauded instead of even going before the believers against another brother? Why not just simply take the wrong? suffer ourselves to be defrauded in order that we might foster the love that covers the multitude of sins and unity among the brethren. And it is within this context that Paul states here, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? There were believers, so-called professing believers in the church who were acting contrary to the character of of one who is born again and one who has a new life in Christ. And in light of this, Paul is encouraging the church not to fool themselves. Not to fool themselves into thinking that the mere association with the church, the mere association with this body of believers, is enough to secure one eternal life. Individual, personal salvation. Throughout the epistle... Paul has made strong mention of the fact that these believers have an understanding of the spiritual, a love for God, and a desire to do what is right. And while we know that this does not mean that a believer will be sinlessly perfect, it is undeniable that every true believer will have within their hearts a compulsion toward obeying the Word of God and a love for God that will keep him desiring what is right according to God's will. And so, Paul says, Know ye not that the unrighteous, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. And as he uses this word unrighteous, we must be careful that we're talking about the people doing the action and not the action themselves. Paul is speaking about peoples whose lives are defined by the fruit of unrighteousness. Just as you and I are righteous, not because of the things we do, but because of Christ, who has done on our behalf what we could not do, so too, these are unrighteous, not inherently because of the things they do, but because they are unbelievers, and therefore they are manifesting the fruit of unrighteousness in their sin. 
And this is important for us to understand. Because if we don't understand this, then we might look at a believer who is coveting and say, the fruit of unrighteousness is making them unrighteous, therefore they're not going to heaven. That's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying these are unrighteous people, therefore they are manifesting the fruit of unrighteousness. Not, these people just sinned, therefore they're unrighteous people. If you take my meaning. We'll flesh that out a little bit as we, as we continue. And so Paul gives a list here. He gives a list of people that shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's take a look at this list together. He says, fornicators, one who is sexually or morally unrestrained, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, idolaters, one who has placed something above God in their affections or in their loyalties. He says, adulterers. It's interesting, if you follow, if you trace this word in the Greek throughout the New Testament, this word sometimes means unfaithfulness to a spouse, but just as many times it's speaking of one who is unfaithful to God. In James chapter 4, when James says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That's that word here. Adulterers. That you are being unfaithful to God. So that is this word adulterers. We see two words here, effeminate, and then in the scriptures it says abusers. Um, abusers of themselves with mankind. Both of these terms are referencing sodomy, homosexual behavior. One is referencing a passive act, the other an active act. But both of those words, effeminate and um, abusers of themselves with mankind, are referencing homosexuality. And then thieves, one who takes that which does not belong to them. Coveters, one who has a strong desire for material goods at the expense of morality or decency, wanting something that is someone else's. A drunkard, one who allows himself to fall heavily and regularly under the influence of substances and chemicals. A reviler, one who is violent and abusive. And an extortioner, one who will seize by violent force, one who is willing to take from others for the betterment of himself. This is the partial list that Paul gives here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, uh, Matt read for us in Colossians chapter 3 this morning another list. And that list had a few other things on it that aren't mentioned here and some that are. We know that Proverbs tells us things that the Lord hates. We know that Galatians chapter 5 gives us a list of the, the, the works of the flesh as contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. And so Paul states that those whose lives are defined by a sinful lifestyle, those whose lives are dominated by a sinful lifestyle are those who are not inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. And as we step into the contrast that Paul is making here, which is the focus of our sermon this morning, I'd like to make two notes in regard to this list. Note number one is that we have a tendency to rank sins, don't we? We have a tendency to place certain sins as the really bad sins and then other sins as the not-so-bad sins, some more unrighteous than others. But as we look at this list we see all of these sins, all of these lifestyles, one who is defined by being covetous, a man who is a coveter, whose life is defined by coveting instead of defined by a love and submission to God, 
is on the list of those who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven just as much as a sodomite is on the list of those who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so we don't really see a ranking of sins as we humans are, uh, have a tendency to do. And I believe we as believers do ourselves a disservice when we seek to categorize sins so that certain ones are marginalized while other ones are, we might say, demonized. We do ourselves a disservice when we, perhaps because we have certain problems and we don't want those problems to come to the highlight, highlight certain sins at the expense of others. And so, there might be a believer in this room who has an idol that they've erected in their heart and they have placed a love for something above a love for God. Or we might have a believer in this room that is covetous and is constantly pursuing that which someone else has and wanting that which others have and is consumed by their coveting. And the church might not even bat an eyelash. But if we were to have someone who stood up and said, I'm a sodomite in this assembly this morning, there would be a much heavier reaction, wouldn't there? There would be a much more grave and sincere desire to help them, to, to restore one, uh, to, to give them power over their sin so that they can live a life of righteousness before God. But why don't we do that for the idolater? Why not for the coveter? Why don't we see those sins as as important? I think because perhaps those sins are the ones that we tend to. And we want to feel like we're okay with God even though we have these pet sins in our lives. In the eyes of God, sin is sin. And we need to understand first of all that this is a list. It's not a ranking. It's a list. And God lists a consumption with any of these sins. If any of these things are the definition of a man's life, then he's not an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. Note number two. And this is where we again need to distinguish here what we're saying. It is not that they are unsaved because of what they do. Rather, they do what they do because they are unsaved. I'm not trying to tell you this morning that if you have sin in your life, you're an unbeliever. Salvation is by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you have accepted that gift through belief, you are a believer. If you have sins in your life that you're still struggling to overcome, join the club. We all do. This is not a perfect church. You don't have a perfect pastor. We are all sinners. But the Scriptures distinguish between someone who is under the blood of Jesus Christ, who has been delivered from sin, who sees victory over sin in his life, and yet still sins because of the flesh, Romans chapter 7. And it distinguishes between that person and the person who is dominated by sin, who has no power over sin, who feels no conviction when he does sin, who has no chastening hand of God upon him, the Scriptures tell us that that person, if there's no conviction, if there's no power over sin, if there's no recognition of deliverance of sin, and if there's no fruit of, of righteousness, fruit of the Spirit in a man's life, then he's not a believer. And that's who's being described here. Those who are idolaters, or coveters, or sodomites, or fornicators, or adulterers, and they have no conviction in their hearts. They are living the lifestyle without a problem. Now, maybe they know societally it's wrong. Maybe they're trying to hide their sin because their conscience is pricking them in the way that the, the conscience of every man pricks them. But there's no chastening hand of God and there's no conviction over that sin. 
then they're not a believer. And that is the distinguishing mark that is being spoken of here. The unbelieving life is chained under the shackles of their own sins and desires so that their very lives are defined by the sins which they commit. The believing life, on the other hand, has been delivered from the sins of the world so that not only are they capable of living free from sin, but their lives are defined by the enablement and desire to walk according to the will of God, which is reflected in the Word of God. So we've laid down that foundation. These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 11, we see a tremendous contrast. Paul says this to the Corinthian church, a church that was quite carnal. He says, and such were some of you, but. You were this way once, but. You were defined by these sins without conviction, without chastening hand of God, but. Whereas at one time God looked down from heaven and saw certain among you as thieves, as sodomites, as coveters, now He looks upon you and He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ in you. And so we must ask the question, what changed? You were this, and now you are this. You were thieves and coveters and idolaters and adulterers and sodomites, and now you are washed, sanctified, justified. What happened? What happened is Christ. What happened is Christ. It's important to note here what's happening in verse 11 in the Greek. Let's read verse 11 together. It says, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of, our, of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We see three action words, verbs, found in this verse. Washed is a verb. Sanctified is a verb. And justified is a verb. All three of these in the Greek are verbs as well. And they are actions that distinguish the Christian from the non-believer. The believer, the born-again believer from the non-believer. And when you study in Greek, and I'm just going to give you a brief Greek lesson here. I try not to do this often, but let's just do a brief Greek lesson this morning. Greek verbs have what is called voice. There's active voice, there's middle voice, and there's passive voice. When a Greek verb is in the active voice, it implies that the subject of the verb is performing the action. George washed the car. He, per, he is performing the action on his car. In the Greek middle voice, an action is being performed on itself. George washed his hair. George is doing the washing, but it's to himself, his own hair. That would be in the middle voice. In the Greek passive voice, a subject is being acted upon. George was washed by the rain. The rain is washing George. George is the subject, and yet he is the one being acted upon. That's the Greek passive voice. Now, as we think about these three verbs in the English, ye are washed, ye are justified, sanctified, ye are justified, these all come across as passive verbs. Something that has been done to us. But when you look in the Greek, in fact, only 
two of them are passive. Sanctified is passive. That sanctification has been done unto us, applied to us. Justified is passive. That justification has been applied to our account, has been put on our account. Washed is not a passive verb. As I thought about that, I thought, well, certainly then it's an active verb. It's not an active verb. It's in the middle voice. An action performed upon yourself. Interesting. Interesting that as Paul is writing to these believers, if we were to read this how it would come across in the Greek, it would be, ye have washed yourself, ye have been sanctified, ye have been justified. You've washed yourself. Starting to sound a little heretical here. We'll have to discuss this a little bit more. So let's talk about that first word, wash. Let's dig a little bit deeper here because if we're not careful, we will fall into heresy that I have saved myself. But that is not at all what Paul is saying here. We do see that the verb is in the middle voice. And so let's take this word and let's trace it through the New Testament to get a fuller flavor of what's happening here. And we really don't have to trace it far because this word washed is found only one other time in the New Testament in the Greek and that's in Acts 22, 16. In Acts 22, 11 through 16, Paul is recalling his conversion. You recall Paul was once Saul and he was on the road to Damascus and as he was on the road to Damascus, uh, there was a bright light. He heard the voice of Jesus Christ saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. He was blinded and the men had to lead him into Damascus where there was a man waiting for him. That man's name was Ananias. And God said, Ananias, go to, go to this man, his name is Saul, and take him into your home. And Ananias says, wait a minute, isn't this the guy that kills Christians? He says, yeah, but, but he, he's... He's accepted me and I'm going to show him what great things he must suffer for my sake and you're going to lead him and you're going to be a part of that. So Ananias uh, takes Paul and, and he calls him Brother Saul and he, he is guiding him. And as he does so, he says in Acts 22:16 this. Ananias talking to Paul and he says, and, wh- and now why tarriest thou? What are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins calling on the name of the Lord. The only other time this word washed, this particular Greek word is found in the New Testament. And guess what? Matt, can I get the next slide, please? Thank you, sir. And Ananias is telling Paul to wash away his own sins. It's again in the middle voice. The only two times this word is found in the Scripture Both times are found in the middle voice. A man doing something to himself. So let's talk about how it is that this is possible without us being heretical. Now the word salvation is used in various contexts within the Holy Scriptures. The New Testament speaks of salvation from the penalty of sin, which is death and hell. Romans 5.9 tells us this. Much more than being now justified by His blood we shall be saved from wrath through Him. The idea of justification by the blood, what we would call being washed in the blood, is God saving us. And we understand that that is God doing something in our hearts to save us, that we don't have a part in that. 
But the New Testament also uses this word salvation to speak of a deliverance from the power of the world and the satanic system that leads this world. In other words, this word salvation or being saved can speak of more than just being saved from judgment, being saved from wrath. And so while we have no part to play in our being saved from wrath, that's entirely God's, God's business. We accept a free gift of salvation and we are saved from wrath through Him. What we also see in Scripture, particularly as we continue in Romans chapters 5 and 6, is that there is an expectation that in regard to this life, we would wash ourselves from our sins. That we would save ourselves from the world that is seeking to destroy us. If we might put it that way. It is our personal responsibility to exercise the deliverance that God has given us over our sins by living sanctified lives. That's not going to happen for us. The day that you were born again, you didn't become perfect. The day that you were born again, you got on a path whereby now you have to make decisions that are going to bring you into line with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see Romans chapter 6 there on the screen. Let's read it together. I know it's kind of tiny this morning. I apologize for that. It's in your Bibles if, uh, if you can't read it up there on the screen. Romans 6, 1 through 7 says this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall, also, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. And so Paul has to go through the process in Romans chapter 5 of showing us that we are justified, that we are delivered by grace alone, and so that it was nothing inherently in ourselves that brought about the means by which we found salvation. But then he says, don't let yourself get lazy. Just because Jesus Christ saved you by grace and all you had to do was accept the gift that was given to Him, don't think that that means you don't have a responsibility in this life. Because you do. And so, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Would He even mention it if we couldn't continue in sin? He wouldn't. But He's mentioning it because we can but we shouldn't. We shouldn't continue in sin that grace may abound. And that is what Paul is saying this morning. And so this idea comes full circle. Paul speaks of our baptism as being baptized into his death. We were planted with Christ. We, were, we, were, were, we died with him and we arose with him in newness of life. That's being born again. But just because we arose in newness of life, it's still our responsibility then to walk in newness of life. To walk the newness that we have. Back in the days just following the Civil War, there were stories that abounded about uh, the former African American slaves who, having been emancipated uh, as a part of the, the um, elements of the Civil War, went back 
following their emancipation and worked in the fields. And did everything that they had done when they were a slave. And people would ask them, you're free now. Why are you still living like a slave? Well, their response was, it's all they've ever known. But that's the idea. The idea is that we, through Christ, have been freed from our bondage to sin. And when we sin again, we're going back into the fields of slavery. We are placing ourselves back into those fields, willingly, though we've been freed from them. We can go wherever we want, but we're, we're putting the shackles back on our wrists and back on our ankles and sitting in bondage that we've already been freed from. And God looks down and He says, should we continue in sin? God forbid. How should we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? It is your responsibility, if we could put it this way then, to wash yourself from your sins. Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. You are saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. But then it is up to you to walk in newness of life, to put on the new man that serves Jesus Christ. God's not going to do that for you. You have to do that for yourself. You have to wash. Symbolically, this is done in baptism. Baptism is an outward manifestation of an inward obedience and an inward decision. When we get baptized, we are telling the world what has already happened in our heart. That we have died to the world, that we are alive unto Christ, and now that we have died to the world and we're alive unto Christ, we're going to walk in that newness of life. It's our responsibility to exercise that privilege. And so 1 John 3.3, we talked about it in Sunday school just briefly this morning, says this. And every man that hath this hope or this expectation in him purifieth himself, even as he, Christ, is pure. Every man that has the hope of salvation in him washes himself. Washes himself from the spots of the world. Because Christ is pure, we are pure as well. That's what Ananias called Paul to do. Ananias called Paul to Wash away his sins. To leave the world behind. And as Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, he says, you have washed yourselves. You have set aside the world. That's a part of what has been done in you already. You're not like those unrighteous unbelievers anymore. You are washed. The second word we see. Ye are sanctified. Now these two words are a little bit more straightforward. Unlike wash, sanctified is in the passive voice. It's something that is is done to us when we are born again. The word literally means to make holy. To purify. To set apart. The word is used throughout the epistles to speak of those who have been born again and thus set apart by God for spiritual work, spiritual blessing, and for eternal life. This would be what we would often call positional sanctification. That God looks down on us and He sees us as set apart because we are in Christ. He sees Christ in us. Our names are written in the book of life. The introduction to several epistles begins with this word, including 1 Corinthians, where Paul or Peter or James says that he is writing to the sanctified in Christ Jesus. 
However, though it speaks of that which is positionally, a positional reality, people that have been positionally set apart unto God, it also speaks of a born-again believer's relationship with God in a far more practical way. Consider with me 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 19-21. through 21. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are His. So they are set apart. The Lord knows who those are. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity, wash himself. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and sil of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, it's the same word, and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. So while God has set us apart unto blessing and spiritual inheritance by salvation, there is also a duty unto us that we need to sanctify ourselves by setting aside iniquity. Now, as we look in um, 1 Corinthians 6, we understand clearly that this is something being done to us. Passive voice. Therefore, this is positional sanctification. You've been set apart by God. You've been saved. You've been born again. But we see that the range of this word gives a, a great deal more expectation upon us as believers. So we are washed, or we have washed ourselves, as the case may be. We are sanctified. We have been sanctified by God. Third and finally, we are justified. The final word Paul uses here to describe us as believers. Again, we see this word in the passive tense, something being done to us. And it's a very appropriate word in this passage. See, because Paul has just spent verses 1 through 8 of 1 Corinthians 6 telling us, not to go to law among brethren. And here he's using a legal term to describe our salvation. He states that we have been judicially declared righteous by God. And it's important that we understand the implications of this term. I've often heard the word justification defined this way, and it's a fine, def uh, it's a, a fine definition for what it is, but I would encourage us to think a little bit beyond it. Many people define justification as just as if I had never sinned. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. Justification means just as if I had never sinned. And I think on a surface level that, that, that definition gives us a good idea of what's going on. But there is a little bit of a problem with it and it's this. When we are justified by God, the idea is not that God looks at us and sees us as if we've never sinned. The idea is that God looks at us and He sees Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ's payment. Therefore, He legally declares us righteous, not because He looks down and sees us as righteous, but because He looks at Christ and sees us as having been paid, our debt as having been paid by Christ. Let me give you an illustration. Suppose you had a debt that needed to be paid. One day you went to your creditor and you asked him to look at your bill to determine exactly how much you owed them. The creditor looks at your bill and says, you owe nothing. The debt has been paid. You say, really? Who paid my debt? They say, well, well, Bill. Your friend Bill paid your debt. Now, as the creditor looked at his books, maybe he doesn't care who paid the debt, but as the creditor looks at your name, he knows full well that it wasn't you that paid the debt. He doesn't look at you and say, you paid the debt. He looks at you and he sees the name Bill next to it, and he says, aha, Bill paid his debt. Someone else has paid it for you. 
In much the same way, God looks at you from heaven and He doesn't see you as if you had never sinned. He sees Christ in you. He knows that you're a sinner and you will sin until the day that you are out of this body. And yet, He sees Christ in you. The difference between you and an unbeliever is not anything you have done, but the fact that Jesus Christ is by your name in the book. That the words paid in full are, in, are by your name because of Christ. Romans 3 is the believer's greatest source in order to gain a true understanding of justification. We won't turn there today, but if you want to learn a little bit more about justification, Romans 3 is the place to go. And what you'll find as you get to Romans 3 is justification has nothing to do with you. When you look in Romans 3, you'll see that justification is all about Christ. It's about redemption in Christ. It's about faith in Christ's blood on the basis of Christ's payment being applied to your life. All of these things declaring Christ's righteousness to the end that you might be justified through Him. And notice, as we finish up here, and I apologize, on the overhead it says verse 12, it should say verse 11. Notice as we finish up this verse, the means by which all of these tremendous things occurred in our lives. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. This is the only way a person can be saved. A man cannot be saved by working hard. A man cannot be saved by doing good things. A man cannot be saved by going to church. A man cannot be saved by following the teachings of great philosophers. A man cannot be saved by following the teachings of murderous false prophets. No one can get to heaven on his own merit. A man is saved by grace through faith in the name of Jesus Christ alone. And at the moment of belief, the Scriptures tell us that the Spirit of God brings about a new birth in the believer, whereby the heart of man is cleansed and changed. And the priorities of man are altered so that the man controlled by sin and driven by selfish ambition dies and a new man is born in him with a heart that loves God and desires to serve Him. Only those who have been washed, sanctified, and justified by the Spirit of God will enter into the kingdom of heaven when his life is complete. And so as we apply this morning, application won't take too long, let me ask you a few questions. The first question being the primary question, the priority, have you been born again? It's the most basic and the most essential of all questions. Have you believed on the name of Jesus Christ and been born again by the Spirit of God? If you were to die right now and you were to stand before God, would you do so in the righteousness of Christ? Or... Would you stand before God in the unrighteousness of your own merit? Are you washed? Are you sanctified? Are you justified? If you do not have confidence in your own salvation, if you do not know that you have ever been born again, then this is priority number one for you. You must understand that you're a sinner. And that because you are a sinner, you have been separated from fellowship with God. You have been separated from the ability to have spiritual fellowship with Him so that not only can you not have fellowship with God on this earth, but God will never let you into heaven 
with an unrighteous heart. Scriptures tell us in Isaiah 64 that we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. There is not enough good you can do to outweigh your bad. There's not enough good you can do to, to, to squeak in on the day of judgment. It doesn't work that way. So we're all sinners. And because of our sin, we deserve the penalty for our sin. If we cannot go to heaven, well, what's the alternative? The Scriptures tell us that the alternative is judgment. And that the eternal judgment that God has ordained is eternity in the lake of fire. A place of torment. And that's bad news. But the good news is, as we've talked about already, your debt has been paid. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. God Himself came to earth. We learned about it. We celebrated His birth this past Wednesday, Christmas Day. Jesus Christ came to earth to be born as a human being, as a man, to be tempted in all points like as we and yet without sin, living 33 years or so on this earth, preaching for those last several years that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, calling all who would believe to do so. And then at the end of those years, He was hung on a cross. And killed. And the scriptures tell us that as he hung on that cross, that God took the sin of the world and placed it on his son. And he bore for us all of the world's sin. So that through his blood shed on the cross, your sin was paid. So that God looks down and he says, paid in full. However, This was a gift. And like any gift, a gift must be accepted. If I were to take my Bible this morning and I were to hand it to Tim and say, Tim, this is a gift to you. It's already bought. It's already paid for. He doesn't have to pay for it. He doesn't have to buy it. He doesn't have to do anything for it. Here's your gift. I could stand here all day holding my arm out until this very heavy Bible makes it so that I can't hold it anymore And if Tim doesn't take it, it's never his. It's never his. Salvation is the same way. I may have already paid for the Bible, but it's got to be accepted. Christ has already paid for the the gift, but it's got to be accepted. You have to accept that gift for yourself. And if you don't accept it, it's not yours. So the payment has been made. Have you accepted it. Scriptures tell us that God so loved the world, John 3.16, that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that He is God, that He died on the cross to bear your penalty, that He rose again the third day in victory over sin, in victory over death, in victory over the grave, and that He is offering this gift to you and you accept that gift, then you will be saved. You can do it right now, even in, in the quietness of this moment in your seat. You can be Born again, a new life in Christ. I encourage you, if you've never made that decision, make today the day. Why today, Pastor? Because you don't have a guarantee of tomorrow. Because tomorrow may never come. You might die in that seat. You might choke on all that delicious food that we'll be eating after, after service today. You might get hit by a car on your way home. There's no guarantee of, of another hour, much less another day. So don't wait. Don't put it off. Say, people, 
People might make fun of me. No one in this room, I can guarantee you that. The angels in heaven rejoice when a, belie- when, a, when a person comes to know Christ as their Savior. Should not God's people rejoice as well? And we will. So I encourage you, if you've never made that decision, make it today. I direct the rest of our application at those who are believers. Those who, like those in Corinth, have accepted Christ, are washed, are justified, are sanctified. And I'm going to ask you three questions, and we'll move through these pretty quick. They won't be in the form of a question on the screen behind me, but they're questions nonetheless. You have been washed. You have died to the world. Are you staying dead to the world? You have been set apart by God. You've been sanctified. Are you living set apart to God? You have been declared righteous. You have been justified. Are you living righteously? Let's talk about them briefly. You have died to the world. Stay dead to the world. As Paul speaks to these carnal believers in Corinth, the very first reason he gives as to why they should flee fornication, why they should separate themselves from sin, why they should rather suffer themselves to be defrauded than to go to law against their brother, all of these elements that he's talked about is because they have been washed. They have publicly declared the renunciation of their love for this world and they have a new life in Christ. They are no longer like the fornicators or the idolaters or the adulterers or the effeminate or the abusers of themselves with mankind or the thieves or the coveters or the drunkards or the revilers or the extortioners. They have been saved. They have been washed. They have renounced the world. But the world is still calling. The flesh still wishes us to follow it until the day that we are with Christ in heaven. So while you are secure in your salvation, it is up to you to place the determinations, the standards, and the protections into your life and the lives of your family, fathers, to purposefully remain unspotted from the sins of the world. We aren't going to just be right simply because we are born again. We can indeed submit ourselves to sin again. We can be out of fellowship with God and walking in darkness. We see it in 1 Corinthians. We see it warned about in 1 John. We see it in the book of James. We see it all over the epistles. Say, Pastor, how do I do it? What are the boundaries? How do I know where to place those boundaries in in my life? How do I be in the world but not of the world? The next several weeks in 1 Corinthians are going to answer that question for us. We're going to have New Year's emphasis next week and then for the next six weeks after that we're going to spend time determining how it is we can live that determined Christian life. So, you have died to the world. Stay dead to the world. Second, you have been set apart by God. Live set apart by God. The reality of our sanctification brings with it tremendous implications. And the message is this. Because we have been sanctified, we need to live Sanctified lies. You know, there are positions that we have in this life that bring about or that bring with it some level, I guess we could say, of expectation or an expectation of dignity and testimony. Now, your pastor is a pastor of Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. Every week on Monday or Tuesday, I go to the bank and I pick up the money bag. And I do this regularly and they know that I'm the pastor of Legacy Baptist Church and we gave them little goodie bags with tracks in them at Christmas time, all of the people that work there and all of these things and they know that I'm I'm the pastor of Legacy Baptist Church. Now, the pastor of Legacy Baptist Church has no pastor dress code. I could go into Legacy, to, to the bank on Monday morning in my pajamas 
and a ratty t-shirt and my hair all over the place as much as could be done when your hair's this short. I could try to make it messy. I don't know if it would work. And no one can tell me different. I don't have, you know, big boss over me telling me what I need to do. But I'm the pastor of Legacy Baptist Church. And so when I go to pick up that bag, even if I have nothing better to do, I'll put on a pair of khaki pants, dress pants, and I'll put on a button-up. And Some days I might have a tie on, some days I might not. And I will look the part. Because I have been set apart as the pastor of Legacy Baptist Church, I am going to represent Legacy Baptist Church in my demeanor, in, my, in the, way I, the way I act. Such is the case with being a believer in Jesus Christ. You are among God's people, chosen out of this world through your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, God has not given us a law of physical blessings and cursings that we are required to conform to. And I'm not telling you that you need to dress in khakis and a button-up every time you go out. That's not what I'm saying. That was, an, that was an illustration. But as a child of God, you have a testimony to uphold. And you are a Christian 24-7, 365. You are a Christian every day of every year. And the very reality of our position demands from us a life that is distinct, set apart, from the world around us. We're set apart and it's expected that we would live our lives in such a way that it reflects the privilege that we have been given as being sanctified. Third and finally this morning, you have been declared righteous, live righteous. You have been declared righteous, so live righteous. As we consider our standing in Jesus Christ through justification, we put these pieces together in a final way. You have been justified by the finished work of Jesus Christ and the declaration of God. Because of this justification, you are judicially capable of standing spotless before God, holy and righteous, unblameable in His sight. And in light of this great gift, how should you act? Let me bring you back to our friend Bill that paid our debt for a moment. Our friend Bill pays our debt. We go into the debtor, we say, what do I owe? He says, nothing. Bill paid your debt. That's wonderful. And so we leave the creditor and we go to Bill and we say, what, what, do you want me to get on a payment plan here? Uh, you paid my debt, can I pay it to you instead? Uh, can I pay it in increments? And he says, no, you owe me nothing. I, I want nothing in return for paying your debt. I just wanted to pay your debt. And you say, Bill, thank you. And you walk out of the house and you steal his car. And you drive away in Bill's car. Now, Bill, we owed nothing to Bill for what Bill did for us. But the very fact that Bill did something for us of such a significant nature means we're probably going to act a certain way toward Bill and it's not going to include stealing his car, right? We're not going to go and deface Bill's property because he paid our debt. We might even say, I want to deface Bill's property, but I'm not going to because he's a nice guy. He paid my debt. Now, we wouldn't want to deface Bill's property. But you see what I'm saying? We are going to want to be kind to Bill. We are going to see Bill as an, in, in an elevated fashion. And we are going to love Bill. And we are going to honor Bill. And someone speaks bad of Bill, and we're going to say, don't speak bad of Bill. Let me tell you what Bill did for me. 
Bill did this for me. He is not the guy you're saying he is. I love Bill. Don't speak ill of Bill. Because he paid our debt. It's not because we owed it to Bill. Bill said, I, you don't owe anything to me for that. But because we love Bill. Because of what he has done for us. And you know, as one who has been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, God doesn't ask you for anything in return. You owe nothing to Him. God doesn't say, if you don't do this, this, and this, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take away your salvation. It's nothing like that. But, because of what Christ did, shouldn't He have an elevated view in our mind? When someone speaks ill of Christ, shouldn't we say, don't speak ill of Him, let me tell you what He did for me. When the Bible says Christ hates certain things, He hates adultery, He hates fornication, He hates lying, He hates coveting, He hates idolatry. Are we going to look and say, Christ, I know you hate these things. By the way, thanks for salvation. Let me just do them. Let me just do everything that you hate. It's like defacing Bill's property after he paid our bill. It's not what we're going to do. When we recognize what Christ has done for us, though we owe Him nothing, we are going to feel an obligation. A proper obligation because of what Christ has done for us. See, you are no longer a fornicator. You are no longer an idolater. You are no longer an adulterer. You are no longer effeminate or abuser of yourself with mankind. You are no longer a thief or a coveter or a drunkard or a reviler or an extortioner. You are no longer defined by those things. And some of you in this room were defined by those things at one point. And you are no longer defined by those things. God has redeemed you from that sin and He has redeemed you from that life. So why would you put yourself back there again? I close this message with a quote. It's a quote from a commentator concerning this very passage. Let me read it to you and then we'll close in prayer. He says, It is not the height of folly, excuse me, is it not the height of folly to suppose that the selfishness and greed, the indolence and frivolity, the dreamy unreality and worldliness which we suffer to grow upon us here will give us entrance into the kingdom of God? The seamen who means to winter in the Arctic Circle, might as reasonably go with a single month's provision and clothes suited to the tropics. There are a reason and a law in things. And if we are not assimilated to the Spirit of Christ now, we can have no part in His kingdom. If now our interests and pursuits and pleasures are all found in what gratifies selfishness and worldliness, it is impossible we can find a place in that kingdom which is all unselfishness and unworldliness. Be not deceived. The spiritual world is a reality and the godliness and Christ-likeness that compose it must also be realities. Put away from you the fatuous idea that things will somehow come all right and that your character will adapt itself to changed surroundings. It is not so. Nothing that defiles can find entrance into the kingdom of God, but only those who are sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray.